Hey everyone, if you are a loyal listener, and thank you if you are, you know that at the very end of every episode, I always include a preview for the next episode. Well, surprise! This week I had a last-minute change of plans, and my guest is actually not last week's preview. Okay, here's the episode. Hello, and welcome to Making It to the Mic, a podcast about how different voice actors got to where they are today. I'm your host, Stephanie Pam Roberts, and this week's guest is Erica J. Erica is a voice actor and mama, and in this episode, we talk about her work in politicals, how she balances work and family, and her thoughts on the shift towards a more inclusive voiceover industry. So let's jump in. Here's my conversation with Erica J. Hi, Erica. How are you today? I'm pretty good. How are you, Stephanie? I'm good. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I'd love to start by asking you to tell us about your journey to voiceover. How did you make it to the mic and what did you do before you were a voice actor? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Um, So many things. So let's see. Um, I've been doing this now for almost six years. So the way I got here, I was um, working for the federal government at the time, um, living in uh, Richmond, Virginia. And I was already singer, songwriter, um, doing my own music, recording it myself, writing it, putting it out in like iTunes and all that, um, and also doing a corporate band on the weekends. Um, So I was truly working seven days a week. That's a lot. <laughs> and had two little kids at the time. Uh, my sons were pretty young. I think they were maybe like seven-ish around there. So I didn't see them as much as I wanted to. You know, we spent weeknights together, but they started to say, you know, hey, mom, you know, I want to spend more time with you. They, that type of thing, you know, mm-hmm. and they pull on the heartstrings of mom, you know. So I had a friend that had mentioned that they were going to do a voiceover. And I'm like, oh, what's that? Like, I had no clue. So then, like, you know, I just started like diving in and just, you know, going online and Googling everything I could and started calling local studios until they got sick of me. But then I kind of, um, I was actually doing a musical at the time. And um, the person that was teaching us, she was a uh, recent acting graduate theater major at uh, VCU. And she told me about a studio that did demos and did voiceover. So I was like, okay, went over there. And I know they don't say don't do it, but folks at uh, In Your Ear in Richmond took care of me. And I did a demo <laughs> without any training. They walked me through. I didn't even know what the word copy meant. Like, that's how green I was. So, yeah, I figured it out. And obviously, that's the demo that I will bury and hope that no one finds. But it was enough (laughs) to get me some kind of work. And um, from there, I just kind of did the online hustle for a few years. And then I started to find the voiceover community. I was like, wow, this is like a whole big thing. And kind of learned more about the the, the media industry in general and kind of grew from there. So. Before that, I guess, yeah, I was doing the um, project management for federal government for Department of Defense and um, moved to Atlanta. And actually now I still hold my corporate job in product management in um, the automotive tech space. Oh, interesting. That's awesome. I feel like you're sort of bridging the gap between many of my guests who either started in corporate or in some sort of art, music or theater. So that's really interesting that you kind of have both not only as like an amateur, like, oh, I did plays in high school, but like you had both professional experiences. That's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. I have glutton for punishment, I guess, because I just work, 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 work. (laughs) So how do you feel like both of those things help you in your business? Like, how do you think your music and your, you know, acting training kind of help voiceover and the corporate side of things and the, you know, political side? 
I mean, what was great for me, and I have to just be thankful that I had the advantage of already knowing how to record myself. Um, I did still have a bit of a learning curve, just like people that come from other audio industries like radio. You know, they get into voiceover and figure out quickly that things are very different. It was the same with music. I knew how to run DAWs. I was working in Pro Tools, which is like the hardest of all. So if you can do that, (laughs) you can work in almost anything. But I, you know, had to learn quickly about the gold standard of audio in voiceover that, you know, before. I had one of those little shield things in a big empty room with lots of hard walls and that I couldn't do that in VO. But, you know, I kind of had a one up in that I knew how to record myself. Um, so that helped me from the music aspects and just performing, understanding cadence, um, how to convey emotion not just in the words, but in how you're saying them and, you know, using tempo and intonation and, Mm. you know, um, your volume, all those things to be able to communicate a message. Um, Did the same thing in music. As far as for the corporate side, I think just having the business background helped me to really treat VO as a business. So there were a lot of things that I was just really anal about in the beginning, um, like tracking things for taxes, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you know, getting incorporated and just sort of having that, that business savvy and that business mindset and able to, being able to bring that to the table and not just sort of coming at it just for the creative aspect was helpful for me. Yeah, totally. Because that is the stuff that the people who, I'll speak for myself, the people who start more creatively are like, wait, what? And it's really a hard thing to wrap your brain around if your brain just doesn't function that way. So I think that's that was really that must have been really helpful for you to kind of from the beginning realize I'm running a business and this is how I run it. Yeah. Yeah, it was very blessed in that way. Yeah. My husband is actually a sound engineer, but he does live sound. And he says all the time, like, I don't think I could do studio work because it's totally different. Totally. Yes. (laughs) I much preferred performing on stage to recording songs because it's like, if you screw up on stage, whatever, you cover it up and you keep it moving, it's done. But, you know, if you... uh if you mess up in the studio, you have to like keep going. And I don't know about you, but I get really like, oh, let me do that again. Or oh, let me try this, you know, so um, for that. And then it's just so much more the perfection, you know, obviously nothing's perfect. But yeah, you have to be a little more, a little, a little more attention to detail for studio work. For me, he was the one who taught me how to use Pro Tools. And I use like one ninety seventh of what the program can actually do for voiceover. <laughs> Same. <laughs> so once you kind of made that demo, what were the first steps that you took with it? You know, did you, well, I guess backing up, did you feel confident about that demo or were you like, Ugh. I didn't know enough to not be confident or to be confident. I was just kind of like, okay, I have a demo. Now what? You know? Um, and again, just helpful with um, that studio that I worked with. They, to this day, still hire me. Um, so they actually had a roster of talent that they kept and um, clients that came to them. So I was able to get some jobs through them with that demo. So luckily it worked out for me, even though it wasn't the best. And like I said, I will bury it. Um, <laughs> well, now I want to hear it. <laughs> but um, yeah, I was able to get jobs through them. But the other steps that I took on my own, like I said, is I kind of harassed some studios, didn't get much luck there. But I did follow the online casting path. You know, it was the information age of Google. So I just Googled around and found a few sites and went on there. Um, One that I'm still on is Voice123. And that was successful for me. Yeah, same. That's how I started as well with the the online stuff. But I really only was on Voice123. I think I had a profile on Voices.com, but I never paid for it. Um, And then, yeah, Voice123 just... I don't know, I hit it at the right time and the right way. And and it's still something that I use every single day for my business. 
Yeah, yeah. I did start on VDC, um, you know, eventually as I grew, it just didn't feel like the right fit for me because I did have a paid membership, but it did get me started. Um, I learned a lot and just, uh, but Voice123 is what's fit me uh, as I've grown throughout my career and continue to, you know, be more of a pro now. So, yeah. And were there things in the beginning that you felt like came really easily for you or things that you really struggled with because you were able to kind of hit the ground running with a demo, but not kind of much training? Yeah. You know, specifically voiceover training. I'm wondering if there were things kind of that you ran into. That is such a great question, because at that stage, I really didn't know what I didn't know. (laughs) Right. Right. So it was like, you know, I would get. I think maybe like within like a month, I booked my first job on on VDC. And I was just like, yay, you know, somebody's going to pay me and I'm on the microphone. And I was so happy. And I think I got like two jobs. But then it was quiet for like months. Mm. And I didn't understand why. And I was like a maniac. Like, you know, I was working full time during the day, come home, take care of my kids. And then I was in the studio from like eight or nine to like two in the morning. And I'd get up at 7 a.m. and do it again. Oh, my gosh. And... (laughs) That studio work included, you know, music, whether it was writing or recording, doing marketing stuff. Like I'd even put together little packages for people that were buying merch from me and whatnot. But it also included auditions. And my goal and what I roughly hit was about 20 auditions a night. Wow. Right. So I'm like, why am I recording 20 auditions and I'm not booking anything? So I didn't know what my hurdle was, but I knew it was something because I wasn't booking. (laughs) and It was pissing me off. But I didn't know what it was. And, you know, now I understand it could have been a few things. It could have been my sound quality because I had a very echoey room. It could have been the performance lacking in that, you know, I was still sort of speaking very perfect and professional and not so conversational. Um, It could have been I was just auditioning for the wrong jobs because I was just sort of, you know, hamster mill doing it. I know in the beginning it does feel like I got to do everything I have to do at all or I won't book anything. So my husband was um, out of work during the pandemic And I was able to kind of like do whatever, whenever. And now that that has shifted back to me being more of, you know, the parent role and the voiceover role having to balance a little bit more again. I've been so selective with auditions. Like I'll open 25 of them on Voice 123. And by the time I read through them all and really like hone and pick through, I have three left. That was the greatest lesson that I took from all of that. It took me a few years to learn. But, um, you know, not doing everything is really not even a good way to do it. But for me, it has actually made me better because I learned more about who I am as a voice talent um, and what jobs fit me and which ones don't. So we can't do everything from a time perspective, but we also shouldn't. Um, You know, not every story is ours to tell. Mm -hmm. So by me, it was freeing to be able to say, okay, it's okay to pass on this one and really focus and hone in on this one that I have a greater chance of landing and that I enjoy doing more. Right. For a while, I was doing things I thought I could do, but maybe I wasn't super right for. And now if it's like inspirational or gravitas, uh, any anything that's sort of like that, I'm like, I guess I could, but I actually think they want you. And so I'm going to pass. <laughs> Right, right. But you're right. That is so freeing. I mean, what a great mindset shift instead of saying like, oh, I'm not booking this or I'm missing out to just shift and say that one's not for me. And that's okay because I really excel at youthful, like friendly, upbeat, conversational, young mom, college kid. And what I could do with inspirational, let it be for the people who that's their thing. Right, right. Or if it's like, if it's just like from a time management perspective, you know, if you've done, you know, everything else and you kind of see one and you're like, 
I could give them a twist of upbeat that maybe they're not expecting, right? That might sound different than everybody else. Then that's cool. Yeah, so it's not like you can't do it, but it's just prioritizing your auditions, right? Yes. I'm curious, too, what your thoughts are. Um, you were saying that you were working so much and being a parent, like, how did you find or how do you continue to find that that balance? Because I feel like for me, it's really hard. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, the thing is now that's great is that, I mean, my kids are older. They're like 17 and 15. But now I'm, I'm actually expecting. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm going to have to figure this out all over again. Um, before, when they were younger, it was just, God, I really don't know how I did it, honestly. I just, um, priority, priority, priority for me was just, obviously, you know, I had to go to work and I was working outside the home at the time where now I am working from home since the pandemic. So that's that's kind of helpful. Right. But man, like sometimes like now since I've been home, like I would cook dinner at lunch. That's what we do. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I would just find any pockets of time to do whatever. And I mean, the kids kind of knew like, you know, all right, you know, we'll have dinner. We'll read our story when they were younger. And it was just like, all right, mommy's in the studio. Come get me if you need me. But, you know, other than that, that was my time. And I really just did not sleep as much. Honestly, that was what suffered. And I don't want to continue that. But now it's just priority. Like I said, I'm, I know I'm not going to get to every single audition most days. So um, I just kind of have to take it from that perspective. Yeah, I think it's so interesting how everybody manages. You know, some people are like, I'm going to hire a babysitter for X number of hours or I have in-laws close by and some people have nothing. Like we, we don't have any family that's close by that can watch our daughter. And yeah. child care is hard and expensive. Yeah. So, yeah, it is hard to kind of find what works for you. And I think what worked for me before the pandemic definitely is not working now. And I had to kind of shift my my plan. Yeah. That's one thing I'm grateful for, too, is that um, my boyfriend that we live together and he also works from home. So um, he'll be we've already discussed, like, you know, you're going to have to take the baby during sessions and, you know, I'll trade, you know, we'll have to be do some trade off and we'll have to figure it out. But one thing I am working on getting better about is outsourcing because um, I am such a control freak. But I am also willing to trade my money for my time because I can make more money. I cannot get more time unless somebody else figures that out. <laughs> Let me know. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm working on that. Yeah. What have you started to outsource? Because I've, I've talked to some other guests about that and and what everybody chooses to outsource is interesting. And, you know, what, what works for them, some people like send their laundry off because that's the thing that takes up a lot of their time and they don't need that to be done by them. Yeah. Yeah. So this one isn't necessarily me, but um, my boyfriend wanted to cut our own yard because, you know, he just we've joked about this. I'm just like, feel like he can do everything himself. And I'm just like, listen, what you can do with that sweat and time, you know, like you can go make more money than we're going to spend on paying someone else who has all the tools already and expertise and loves doing it. You know, so that's one thing. It's like our yard work. I don't touch the yard because I have teenagers. Honestly, I outsource the cleaning of the house. They do the dishes, the trash. Well, that's really smart. The wiping of the counters, the cleaning the bathrooms, and I pay them an allowance. This is a genius idea. Parents of older kids, if you're listening. Oh, please outsource to your kids <laughs> and give them an allowance, you know, because it kind of and link it to the work that they're doing. You know, like that's that's what we did. So also sometimes I will outsource editing. I don't do a whole ton, a, a whole lot of um, long form work. Um, but when I do. I had one that was like a kid's audiobook, and I was reading like the RMS and all the specs for ACX. And I was just like, you know what? I'm going to hire somebody that knows how to do this because I, I, it's making my brain hurt. And, and why? <laughs> you know, um, so that and um, even little things like 
like I have hardwood floors, so it's and two dogs. So you sweep and then there's hair magically appears five minutes later. So like I bought one of those robot vacuums. You can outsource to bots, too. Um, so, yeah, and I'm looking for more ways. I'm looking at like a virtual assistant and things like that. But it's, some things are just harder to let go of. But, yeah, I'm, I'm trying. Yeah, it is hard to figure out what things you need to keep control over and what things it's okay to release. Yes, it's hard, like accounting and stuff like that. So let's shift gears a little bit and talk about your home studio. What was your first home studio like, or did you already have equipment because you were doing music stuff, and how could you kind of adapt it, and where has your voiceover booth evolved to? Yeah, yeah. So... Um, starting out, like the very first kind of thing that I had set up was I was in a closet with, um, like some, a little bit of treatment, not as much as, you know, I learned later that I was going to need, but that was when I was just kind of doing music. And I think my first interface was a Focusrite. I think it was, um, the first one, first gen. So yeah, that tells you how long I've been recording at home. And then I think I had got like this, uh, I think I got the bundle actually. And it came with like an MXL $100 mic or something like that. And the headphones, it was one of those. Um, but I wasn't doing voiceover yet. That was just music. And then when I moved to another house, I had got that little shield thing. Forget what it's called, the X something um, that goes around the mic on the stand. I was on a Rode NT2A, not the one for singing. And I started to do some voiceover at that point. But I thought that shield was going to be enough. I wasn't in the closet anymore, so I was just in a big echoey room with that shield. And I quickly learned, well, not quickly, I learned later <laughs> that that wasn't enough for voiceover. But actually, because of music, I had a uh, producer that listened to me and suggested the uh, TLM 103 mm -hmm. just for my singing voice. So that was a great investment because it worked for music. And then I found out later that it was great for, you know, VO that needed a little more space like animation and games. And I still have that in my booth today. So then after that, what did we go to? Um, I went back into a closet, treated it. And that was when I kind of started to really learn, okay, I need a little more here. And I got acoustic blankets. And I remember one weekend I was like building and, you know, everybody just knew just leave Erica alone this weekend. All my kids, my boyfriend, everybody, I was just in there just hammering nails and, you know, putting stuff together. And it turned out sounding pretty good. And then got the 416. And then about a year or so ago, I got my studio bricks, but added extra treatment to that as well. Um, shout out to George Whittem for uh, teaching me about that, because those things are not necessarily ready to go. When you get them, you have to tailor them a little bit. Yeah. I think that's a misconception. People think, I've spent all this money on this booth, and now that's it. <sighs> yeah. And just hop in here and plug up a mic and go. And like, no, it can sound pretty boxy if you don't treat it in here. <laughs> yeah. I love that. I love that you were able to kind of, you know, keep adapting and and figuring out what you needed next. And, you know, as Karen Gilfrey says, grow as you go, because I think it's hard, especially now that everybody knows they need a home studio. And so they're like, I'm going to buy the thousand dollar microphone. I'm like, yes. But if you don't have a space for it, don't buy it. Absolutely. Like the space, the space, the space is number one. Um, you can take some halfway decent mics and if you have a really great space it can work but you could take an excellent mic like a u87 for example i wouldn't use that mic in my studio bricks because it's not very forgiving of small spaces it needs room but it needs treated room so like you know understanding that balance between space and equipment and also your interface like i mentioned i started on this on the focus right um but then i went to an audient id22 which i still keep today as a backup um but primarily I use my um, Apollo Twin. Mm -hmm. And all of that is important. Even the cables, I had to learn that, that the mic cables actually matter. I was using like a Amazon, like, okay, it's just an XLR cable, whatever. But that's what's transmitting the signal between your mic 
in your interface. So that's important, too, to have really good quality cables. And um, yeah. Agreed. So on that same note, but on a different side of the business, did you or when did you kind of get into trying to get management and agents and representation? Ooh, so I have to say, like, I didn't know any better for the first three or four years. <laughs> you know, I was just like, oh, OK, I just do this online thing and met a few people. But I was just kind of like, you know, agent wasn't really like top of my list because I just for one, I just didn't feel like I was at that point. And I was just kind of happy with where I was just doing some work because it was really a side thing at that point. But I would say it was just before the pandemic when I started attending like more workshops and really understanding more of the landscape of the industry. I was like, oh, OK. And it just kind of worked out that there started to be more of a demand for voices of color around that time that I was kind of reaching the peak of my preparation. So that was when ACM actually reached out to me. And yeah, I was I was very, very fortunate. <laughs> but again, that was, again, like all those years of sort of being prepared and, and learning and starting to go to classes and meet people. So when the opportunity presented itself, I was ready. That's important. I feel like to keep training, to keep learning things and growing yeah. because you never know when somebody is finding you somewhere and wants, you know, expects or wants you to be at a certain level. Absolutely. And I did actually, I'll, I'll take that back a little bit, though, because I did have some a couple regional agencies I had reached out to. And one I was working with every once in a while in Atlanta, they would send me some auditions, but wasn't getting a whole lot of lands, right? Like not getting a lot of things that actually materialized. Um, but yeah, sort of the, the biggest one when was when I got signed with ACM. And then um, I was with Coast to Coast for a while with Porsche, and then just recently signed with DPN. So that's been a great journey. But again, all about the preparation. I did tons of workshops <laughs> so many times. Like at one point, my boyfriend's like, OK, like you got to slow down because like I wasn't having any family time because I was doing workshops all night mm -hmm. <laughs> and working all day. But yeah, it's just about getting prepared and not necessarily running to, hey, will you represent me, but making sure that you're bringing something to the table in that partnership with that representative. Right. And it's a partnership that works both ways. They're working yes. for you. You're getting them money. It's it's a boat. It's a two way street. Absolutely. Yeah. I would love to talk about what you were saying about getting into the industry when they were seeking your type. So I'd love yeah. to hear kind of more about how that has changed and evolved and shifted, you know, the trends for BIPOC talent. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, in general, like what? It was not really because of the pandemic, but it just happened to have like happened around that time where we had a little more social unrest with like the killing of George Floyd and all those things that bubbled up. Mm -hmm. um, but we had already known and seen that there was a lack of representation, not just of BIPOC, but really just diversity in media in general. Um, it was there and it was like kind of known, but there was just wasn't like a spotlight on it until that event happened. So it was like around that time. Because that event happened and all the, the protests and, and just sort of the attention that got put on it, I think a lot of companies were like, oh, you know, we really need to step up and really make efforts to diversify and represent the American population. So that crossed over into a lot of forms of media, not just voiceover, but even looking at commercials, the on-camera talent. I saw more interracial couples. I saw more black couples. I saw more you know, kids of color, more AAPI, more um, queer people on TV. And I think increasingly I'm starting to see a little bit more disability or uh, differently abled representation. So I think all of it has it just kind of got kicked off by that BLM movement. But in all forms of media, we've just started to see more diversity, which I think is great. Yeah. I mean, even I've been doing voiceover since 
2011-ish, and I save every email, and I can pull up auditions from that time, and they look so different than what they are now. And it's kind of an amazing thing to see tangibly, like, instead of just saying, like, oh, I think it's shifted more, like, no, an audition from 2012 mentions nothing. Every audition now says seeking, and then they say something more specific, like seeking, um, you know, non-binary or BIPOC talent only or heavily considering a, you know, Latinx person. And I think that's such an amazing thing because why wasn't it that way, first of all? But, you know, to really see how the industry has shifted and you're right, like to show the world, the, the, you know, the country that we live in. And I think even before this, there had been some of a shift happening in terms of gender um, because it wasn't just white that was the default. It was white man that was the default, right. like in the 90s, right? So, you know, we had already been seeing that, like, industry uh, genres like promo or automotive or, you know, different areas like that that were very heavily male were starting to balance out and you were starting to see closer to 50-50 male and female. So I think that race, sexual orientation, you know, physical abilities, all of that was just sort of like the next step to um, be more representative of the population. And I know you work in political ads. So how did that kind of, you know, shift into that as well? Man, um, I love doing political work. It's just I don't know if it's because a couple of things, I guess, from one working in government for so long. And and even before that, um, I was like one signature away from joining the military. (laughs) Yeah, I did um, ROTC. I was on an ROTC scholarship in college for two years and led my battalion. Yeah. So like doing PT and all of that. So I was around military culture for 10, 10 years, just about. So that's a very political environment, even in corporate, you know, sort of understanding how to be firm and state your peace, but not be nasty, you know, those sort of things. I mean, you just kind of get a little bit of political training in that way. And then I think it's just that I tend to be very outspoken and opinionated, and I don't mind picking a side of the fence, if you will. Um, or even if I agree with both sides of the fence, I'm okay with saying that. So political was just sort of natural for me. I didn't mind it. And then added to that, that I have sort of a lower register voice, which tends to convey authority, they say, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, and the gravitas and all that. So it just kind of worked. But yeah, I just, I'm just not afraid of it, and I enjoy it. I'm so scared of it. I haven't done it. It's, it's fun to be able to especially voice for candidates that I believe in for causes, you know, that I really want to see progress. Um, like I, the uh, special election that we had in Georgia that moved the Senate, you know, I did a, uh, an ad for that. That's awesome. So just things like that. Like it's, it's fun to be able to see your voice have an impact. So I think that's, that's why I enjoy that, that genre. What do they call the, not the positive ads, but the negative ads? Oh, yeah, the attack ads. Yeah. Those are fun. I'm so scared of it. I I don't know. I'm scared of, like, voicing something for a candidate that I think I agree with and then coming to find out that they have a horrible stance on something that I disagree with. And I don't know. I just, plus, I feel like my voice isn't super suited for that that area. I don't think they need, like, perky lady. You never know. There's, there's, there's very positive ads that come out. There's some where they want you to be a little more, like, sarcastic. So it's, like, sweet sarcastic. So I think anybody can do political. It's just a matter of how you feel about it. And like you said, there is that bit of a risk. You know, you can research the candidate or research the issue, but there's only so much you can find online and typically in a short amount of time because political is very quick turn, just like promo. Um, So you do what you can. You know, you cross your fingers and you hope for the best. But um, yeah, the Internet helps. Yeah. You know, the, the good side of it is that you are helping to hopefully make change. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. I mean, even um, 
some stuff that I see on online casting sites that's, you know, a PSA for something that I really feel strongly about or something I connect with as a mother. I always write that in my little blurb. I, you know, feel very passionate about this cause or this issue. And and I think it's important to feel that connection, especially in something like politicals where you're clearly, you know, although I know people that are like, I'll voice for anything, for anybody. I don't care. It's acting. But I don't know if I could do it. Yeah, I'm I'm not quite in that camp of the anything. I have to sleep at night, <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, I, I do think it's good that when you're passionate about an issue, um, it comes across in the read, and that's what they're looking for because you're trying to either persuade or you know get somebody to get up and take action, whether that's going to vote, you know, or going in their community or whatever. So if you have passion behind it, which is going to come through if that's genuinely how you feel, right? You know that that's what they're looking for. So yeah. I will link in the show notes an episode of VO School Podcast, which is hosted by season one guest Jamie Muffet. And he did an episode with Maria Pendolino, also a season one guest. And she worked with a producer and they do a a listener read where they listen to people's uh, submissions for this fake script that they wrote. The candidate's name is Jimmy Mullet, which was great. And they go through with, you know, Maria and the producer and they give feedback and they say, like, why this person would have or wouldn't have booked it and give kind of uh, constructive criticism about how to handle, you know, the positive and the negative attack ads with great strategy. So if you're interested in politicals, it's a great episode. I will I will link it. Yeah. Jamie's great. VO School podcast was definitely like key for me. I binged on that at the beginning of the pandemic, like all 50 episodes. I think I got through like a month. Great resource. When people ask me about, like, how do I get into VO? That is one of the resources I point them to because it is 50 plus hours of free information. You can't beat it. And Maria's yeah. great, too. Yeah. Um, I learned a lot from her about usage and rates and protecting myself so that I could have a career. Um, and then, yeah, I'm with her collective Blue Wave as well for political. Um, so that's been great. Yeah. And are you a guest speaker this year at Evocation? I am, actually. Tell us about that. That's coming up. Oh, it's... It's so cool because it's so full circle because like I went to Evocation, but it was the 2020 when we were all inside. So, um, you know, as an attendee to be able to do that. And now two years later, I'm going to be a presenter. So I'll be on the Working Pros panel. I think that's on Saturday, the second night. So we'll be discussing, you know, Working Pros stuff, what's going on in the industry. And then I'll be teaching a class Sunday morning on work-life balance. And sort of the subtext to that is, as I mentioned, I do still work a corporate job along with having what I consider to be a full-time voiceover career. I'm in the booth every day. I run a business. I have an income that reflects full-time. And, you know, it, it is a balance. There are things that are tough and you have to get very efficient. But just sort of taking a look at the strategies that have worked for me, discussing things like I do have a family. So I know that's a whole third leg. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And just um, different things to do to get efficient, to prioritize. And maybe we're going to have workshop after. So maybe talking to people a little bit about their individual situations and little improvements you can try to make to build your VO business while you're still working a job. Yeah. So I'll, I'll put the evocation link in the show notes. I'm not sure how late you can buy tickets, but you never know. They're still open, I believe. I know the early bird spots are gone, but I think you can buy tickets up until the event. You know what's funny is I, pregnancy brain, I double booked. So I'm actually going to be on a quick getaway with one of my friends from college in Cancun. <gasps> so I'll be teaching from the beach. Virtual world. I'll be taking my little Shure MV88 mic and my laptop and uh, hoping that I can get somewhere that's relatively quiet and uh, <laughs> talking from there. So, yeah. So I'd love to kind of shift into how you approach auditions, kind of shift into the the nitty gritty of like, Okay, you know, you receive an audition from, uh, you know, ACM. 
it's for whatever, a commercial, and what's your process? So I think what I do first is um, I take a quick glance at the specs that have come in, how soon it's due, particularly if it's commercial and it's short enough for me to kind of just get an initial glance through the read. I'll first determine, like, if this is a high-priority audition for me, like, yes, I really want to do this, it's great for me, I'm a perfect fit, and I really want to do it, or if it's, like, if I have time. I would love to be able to audition for everything. And some days I can get to everything. Um, But a lot of days, especially now, I can't. So that's my first step is prioritization of the auditions. Then what I'll do is once I'm kind of ready to look at recording, sometimes if it feels like it'll be better for it to be organic, I'll actually come in and do a cold read and and I'll run the recording. If I do that, I usually do a second take immediately after just in case. But sometimes there are things that come out when you do it cold that you just can't replicate once you're, you know what I mean, in your, once you kind of know what's coming. So I do that. I definitely think of, and I hated this question when I first started, I hated it, of who am I talking to? But it really does help (laughs) to make it specific, just to get a sense of the situation that I'm in when I'm saying this message, what kind of emotion am I feeling and trying to convey? So that's sort of like the initial steps. And then when it says conversational, I mean, when it inevitably says conversational, what do you do? Almost all scripts, unless it tells me different, I kind of approach it with a try to approach it as conversational as possible. I will definitely get in my mind, maybe not a super specific scenario, but just like, you know, like what's the vibe? What's the type of person I'm talking to? And very often it is one of my family members. I have pictures of my kids and my boyfriend and my ultrasound in the booth. (laughs) Oh, I love that. So, you know, sometimes I'm really like looking at them and then I talk. So, you know, it just kind of puts a face to, and I can, it's easy to create a scenario when it's someone that I know that I see and talk to every day Mm -hmm. um, that makes the read more specific. And that helps make it conversational because then it's not like I'm reading the script to you. You know, it's like I'm talking and, and I'll catch myself if I'm like, if it says talking, maybe I should say talking, you know, and things like that make it more conversational. Right. Yeah, I've taught a few classes for college, like BFA students, and almost everybody's default is exact enunciation. Like, I cannot, I won't, I don't want to. Yes. And my my first note is always, well, but you wouldn't really say that in real life. If you were just talking to your friend, you would say, I don't want to. So, yeah, I think that's that's such an important thing to remember. Like that sometimes is this tiniest shift that makes it sound conversational because I feel like we rack our brains like what does conversational mean? But sometimes it's literally just that. It is. It is. And just not being afraid to slightly and very strategically dishonor the script. And that is an art to find that balance. And that's what I mean. If you see going to, then that is correct written English. And that is how the writer is going to write it. But when you're talking, you know, if you say gonna and it fits, it's okay to go with that. Right. And I think especially those scripts that not only say conversational, but go even a step further and say real, relatable, non-announcery. Yeah. You know, all of that, those like extra words, like if it just says conversational, okay. But if they really go so far as to say like, you know, a real person, like this really has to sound like a real person, then for sure. Yeah. That's when you really do want to get specific about, okay, in what scenario would I say these words? You know, and that'll help it make it make it more more real. Yeah, that's so interesting. I, I love hearing how different people approach approach the the specs and 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 see kind of what everybody's interpretation of those words is. Because, like, what's your interpretation of gravitas? 
Yeah, right. Yeah. What's your interpretation of warmth? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like I think something uh, I think I looked up the word gravitas and it was just really something like grounded. Mm. And I'm like, well, everybody can be grounded. Right. You can have a high pitched voice and be grounded. Right. So like you said, what's your definition? What's your take on it? And that's why they do auditions, because everybody's going to have a different take to a certain extent. Um, and it may not mean what you think it is. But isn't it funny because I was talking to um, a voiceover ladies group that I work with and we were talking about that, how, you know, when it says warm, I often count myself out because my voice doesn't I feel like my voice is higher than what warm is. But what if warm is like somebody's sister who sounds youthful as opposed to what I think in my head is warm is someone who sounds older, more, you know, deeper. But maybe that's not what the copywriter or the casting director thinks of. And I mean, it could be, but we don't know for one. And that's why it's so freeing when you can start to try to, if you try to divorce yourself from the sound, and I know everybody says this, like, don't worry about the sound of your voice, do the acting. And it's so hard to do because when we see the specs, we want to sound like what they said they want. Everybody at some point has sounded warm. You know, what about when you talk to your grandparents or if you're talking to your kids? You know, if you're like if your kids had a bad day at school or have a bully, like you're going to sound warm, even if you have a higher pitched register. True. Yeah. You know, so there's different flavors of warm and different flavors of gravitas. If you are being really serious and you're really passionate about something, you can have gravitas in your voice. And if they hear that passion and that conviction, you may book that job over somebody else who's just relying on the fact that they have a deep voice with a little rasp. Right. Like if you can act it, yep. even though you don't have the the tone or the timbre of the voice. Yeah. Ooh, what a great point. Thank you for that. Now I'm going to go audition for everything that says warm. But I'll probably still skip gravitas because I, I don't feel because when I see gravitas and suddenly I'm trying to like do something and it's not it's not something. Yeah. I hear you. I've done the same thing with like upbeat, you know, the girl next door. I'm like, eh, you know, I kind of sound a little more like the disgruntled, the sarcastic rye dry. But, you know, sometimes I'll play with it. But yeah, I hear you. Sometimes it's just like I'm not even going to put my ring, my hat in the ring on that one. Yeah. So before we wrap up, I'd love to know kind of what your favorite piece of advice is to offer to people who are just starting out. I guess what first comes to mind is just understanding that this truly, it sounds so corny, but it really is a marathon, this this industry, this work, because it, you have to be multifaceted. There is this three-pronged stool, and you're going to find other little minor legs that you need as well. But essentially, like the tech savviness, the performance and creative aspect, and the business aspect. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say you cannot succeed without proficiency in all three. Mm. Maybe not being an expert, you know, you're going to obviously level up as you go, but you've got to understand how to record yourself. You have to understand what a noise floor is and how to get it down, how to get your space right, how to um, run your interface and your change your gain so you're not clipping. You know, mics, eh, I know it's the first thing people go to, but I feel like mics is probably the last thing. <laughs> you can get away with a lot with mics if you have your space right, if your interface is right, if you have the right system where you're not hearing a fan in the background, any kind of stuff like that. So you have to have that technical savvy. You have to understand the business so that you're not putting a commercial out that is someone saying in perpetuity usage. And now you can never voice for something in technology again. You know, you will kill your career before you start. So you have to understand the business. And then obviously performance. Like you have to bring that that um, that acting to the mic. So, you know, it takes time. Be patient with yourself. Give yourself grace. 
learn from a lot of different sources. But those three um, sort of tenets uh, are essential. I love that. I think that's so true. And to build on that, if you don't know, seek the information, find out, take a class. You don't have to struggle alone. There's so many people. If you are not a tech person, that's okay. Make the effort to, to learn because I think you're right. And and I, I say all the time that not only have I been doing this for a while, but my husband is a sound engineer. And there's still days where I'm like, oh, no, something is broken and I don't know how to fix it or I just recorded a podcast episode and my I sounded like a robot. And I'm like, why do I sound like a robot today? And it was the yeah. simplest thing that I completely missed because it's something I take for granted that I just do, which was I did not mute my record track. So let this be a lesson. Mute yourself when you're on your record track. <laughs> but it wasn't until weeks later when I went to edit the episode and I was like, oh, oh, that's what happened. Yeah. And you know what? I'm actually I'm going to start adding a fourth prong to that. And that is just like giving your like yourself grace, because things like that are going to happen. They happen to pros. Like I was recording a, a demo like a month or so ago and I have the two mics in my um in my booth. I had done, I guess, a video game or a singing or some some other audition on my TLM. And I was recording the demo, what I thought was on my 416. And I know people have done this. I get the audio back and I'm like, that sounds kind of boxy. And I was like, oh, my God. I didn't switch my mics. So I'm thinking I'm talking into the 416 and probably a whole foot away from me is the 103. (laughs) And, you know, like things like that happen. I've heard of that happening on jobs with people. So, I mean, you just have to give yourself grace. You're not going to land everything. The rejection in this business happens daily. So just having that grace with yourself um, will help you move forward to the next to the next one. Well, thank you so much, Erica. This was awesome. I feel like we covered so many amazing topics and and had some great information from you. So thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Stephanie. This was really cool. Even though I didn't know Erica personally and we had never spoken before this interview, I absolutely love talking with her. I feel like she had such a fresh perspective on so many things, like how to choose what you audition for, how to think about scripts or specs that at first glance might not seem like a perfect fit, and ways to maximize your time and prioritize. And if you want to attend Erica's workshop at eVocation, there's still time to buy your tickets. If you'd like to learn more about Erica, I'm linking her website and socials in the show notes, which you can find at my website, makingittothemic.com. Please make sure you follow or subscribe to this podcast where you're listening now so you don't miss an episode. Thanks so much for listening. And for real this time, here's a little preview of next week's episode. There was no one else doing that style. Everybody else was the big booming movie trailer voice that couldn't do the e-learning explainer video. So I just dove in and had so much fun doing it. That's next time on Making It to the Mic.